huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good morning and welcome to another episode of UTL Radio Week in Review. We're doing it on Tuesday today, a little bit uh, of a, of a shake-up, right? But we like to keep things fresh and we shake it up. We're practicing for next week. Yes, plus I hate Mondays, and so I guess Tuesday was a good <laughs> enough day. To my, you and the boom-down rats. Yeah, my three-year-old woke up yesterday, and he had the nastiest face on. And remember that uh, that movie, Office Space, where... Um, mm-hmm. The receptionist goes out and she's like, somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> that was him, eh? That was totally him. So here we are on Tuesday, but um, we've got the same great stories. A lot happened last week, so we got a lot to get to. Um, you know, a couple things I want to mention before we get going. Uh, first of all, I want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, and they are the world's largest provider of audiobooks on the internet and our listeners get a a special offer it's a free download you get one free book all you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash utl radio and get your free book so check that out also want to mention that we are as always streaming live on uh, youtube live and as long as we're talking about youtube i just want to make reference to one thing that we've been doing uh, we started a five-part video series on our YouTube channel, and we are giving you the top five reasons not to file a lawsuit, the top five reasons not to sue. And that's going to be happening all throughout this week. We've already posted the number five reason, and the number four reason was posted today. So I don't want to ruin it for you. You should go to the channel and check it out and find out what the top five reasons are not to file a lawsuit. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, too, because then you get notifications of uh, schedule changes, like today's change from Monday to Tuesday with Week in Review, and you get notified when all of the other videos are up and posted. So check that out and make sure you subscribe. Uh, we've gotten a lot of, of new uh, subscribers, and I thank you, uh, whether you're on Twitter or 
on YouTube. Thank you very much. We definitely appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you guys, so thanks. Bob, we've got a lot of stuff going on here today. And before the show, one of the stories that we're going to be talking about in a minute, the Texas motorcycle shootout, I had um, laid out an open invitation to anybody who is available now to talk who might be either in a motorcycle club or just ride a motorcycle. I want to give you that call-in number one more time. It's 347-855-8831 if you want to chime in when we get going into that discussion. Uh, The other thing I put out there is we're going to be talking about the Philadelphia train derailment, the Amtrak derailment. And so if you want to talk about that, again, it's the same call-in number, 347-855-8831. All right, Bob, so what do you got for us first? Yeah, and absolutely. uh, And unbelievably, the shootout in Texas didn't involve a cheerleader mom. Uh, Organized crime charges being filed against 170 motorcycle gang members after the Texas shootout. Approximately 170 members of rival motorcycle gangs were charged with engaging in organized crime Monday, a day after nine people were killed and 18 others injured in a shootout at a Texas restaurant. A Waco judge set bond at $1 million for many of the suspects. McLennan County Justice of the Peace, W.H. Peterson, defended the high amount, citing the violence that quickly unfolded in a shopping market busy with a lunchtime crowd. He says that we have nine people dead because these people wanted to come down and do what? Drink and party? Peterson said. I thought a million dollars was appropriate. (laughs) The crowd of suspects was so large that authorities opened a convention center to hold them all before they were arrested, police said. Authorities added that it was too early to determine if any of the bikers would face murder charges. A Sunday's melee at the Twin Peaks restaurant in Waco drew a broad police response that included placing officers atop buildings and highway overpasses to watch for other bikers rushing to the scene to retaliate, because they probably all tweet now. Uh, The charges were filed on the same day a Dallas television station reported that state officials had issued a bulletin warning local law enforcement agencies of increasing violence between two of the main motorcycle gangs involved in Sunday's melee, the Cossacks and the Banditos. Now, WFAA obtained the bulletin dated May 1st and reported that it said the conflict could stem from Cossacks refusing to pay the Banditos dues for operating in Texas and for wearing a Texas patch on their vests without the Bandito's approval. And we all know how important brand identity can be in protection of that. The Bandito's formed in the 1960s are involved in trafficking cocaine, marijuana, and methamphetamine, according to the U.S. DOJ. Bandito's concluded their activities as, or excuse me, conduct their activities as covertly as possible to avoid publicity, uh, according to the DPS assessment. Members, however, are not covert about making their presence known by wearing their colors and insignia and riding in large groups. The Texas assessment does not mention the Cossacks, however. Swanton, the sheriff of the area, said authorities had received threats against law enforcement throughout the night from biker groups and stood ready to confront any more violence. Officials stopped and questioned motorcycle riders, profiling <clears throat> agents from the FBI and the, uh, Bureau of, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives were assisting local and state authorities. Now, Twin Peaks, which is a national chain that features waitresses in revealing uniforms, oddly enough, on Monday revoked the franchise rights to the restaurant, which opened in August. Company spokesman Rick Van Warner said in a statement that the management team chose to ignore warnings and advice from the company and did not establish the high security standards that the company requires. (laughs) The Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission on Monday issued a seven-day suspension of the restaurant's liquor license as well, but owners had the option of reopening to serve meals. Ah, this is just (laughs) going to be a myriad of fun when it comes to everything shaking down on this. 
But the first thing, organized crime, Peter? Really? You know, do we still do that? You, yeah, you know, you, if if you were a fan of Sons of Anarchy, you remember, you know, I don't know, I guess a year ago when the season finale was on, I was talking about it. Yeah. If you ever wondered, does any of this really happen or is it? <laughs> this is, Exhibit A. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is exactly what was going on in Sons of Anarchy. And I know that Sons of Anarchy was based off of some real-life experiences and people who, who I mean, a lot of the, the research done for that show they were really involved in some of the um, kind of insider world of biker gangs. And, you know, now you see this story, and it's really amazing the parallel that <laughs> to the show. Because, you know, in the show, being in a biker gang is not illegal. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way that they get you on federal charges is under RICO, right? Racketeering and organized oh, crime. okay, okay. And so, yeah, if they can put together a case that shows that you are trafficking drugs um, and, you know, you've got this this organization, which obviously is the the biker club, and this is all simplified, but the idea behind it is that now you've got federal indictments and crimes, you know, in this melee We've got, I think, 170 arrests, and most of them are going to be dismissed. But I think the ones that will stick are the ones that they can prove RICO charges against. And RICO is not easy to charge, but you know, when you think of RICO and, and, and organized crime, you think of the, the mafia. But sure. here you can see how the federal government applies RICO to the biker world. And, you know, it's really – it's kind of shocking that this sort of thing – goes on, especially if you are a fan of, of a fictional show, you know, very similar to Breaking Bad, where the guy's making <laughs> meth out in the desert, but then you find out that, like, New Mexico is the meth capital of the world. So all of these shows have have a basis in reality, yeah. um, and this one, too, which is just... The old art, art imitating life. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, here I think, um, you know, you've, you've got the biker culture, and I think that, you know, over the past, what, two years now, we've had two or three incidents involving biker gangs. We've got the one out in New York City. And those guys were, remember the guys that were riding down the oh, Cross Bronx yeah, yeah, Expressway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the West exactly. Highway? Yeah. And, and some of those guys, I mean, I think it was just in the news last week that one of the off-duty officers was either you know, arraigned or his trial was coming up. I don't remember. Exactly, but um, that wasn't a biker gang. That wasn't the level of organization, and that's why there's no RICO charges with that. Uh, okay. So that's the difference. He, there's an organization, there's a hierarchy, there's a structure that is known amongst the organization, per se. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, know, you, have, you have officers of the, the motorcycle club. Um, you know, the MC has... They've got a sergeant of arms, they've got a president, they've got a vice president, and it's a structured, organized setting. Now, you know, there are a lot of motorcycle clubs out there that are not involved in any illegal activity. So I think it would be unfair to categorize all motorcycle clubs as bad. There are police organi organized uh, motorcycle cycle clubs. There are, 
you know, um, a ton of, of clubs that are out there for the purpose of just having fun. But or doing good. There's charity organizations as well. Oh, totally. You know, but I think that um, there is this culture, especially out in California, Arizona, Texas, out west. I think you come across a lot of these uh, old, hardcore 1960s and 70s originated motorcycle clubs that make their their money and their living through some form of organized crime. Um, but you don't really hear about it. It's not like you know when they were looking for Al, Al Capone or um, you know Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa. It's different. Oh yeah, but totally which time with it? <laughs> which time on Hoffa? Um, <laughs> the excuse me. The um, we have because of where I live, we have a local. We have a, we have a, a we'll call it a barn, and the older fellows of the area get together each day and, and, and every day. And uh, and have a few pops and, and discuss the uh, the gossip of the area. We call it court. And the the topic was brought up yesterday um, by someone. And I said uh, they were talking about how much trouble people were getting into. And one thing I noticed was this Twin Peaks was warned about this problem. Yeah. So does that open up a potential for some form of neglect in any death? I I think that you can certainly. Um, make a cause of action out against Twin Peaks. But, you know, it, that's going to be, um, I think, something that develops over time, not too much time, uh, just like with the Amtrak derailment. You know, the, the train isn't even done smoking. You've got people filing lawsuits. But I think that the people that were, were killed, um, and I don't know how many of them were innocent bystanders, but I think that those people would potentially have a claim against Twin Peaks. Um, how strong it is, you know, that's that's left up to the evidence. And, you know, yeah, you might have suspected or known, uh, but did you actually breach a duty that you might have had? And, and that's the other thing with the, the legal element of negligence. Um, I don't know exactly who all the victims are. And like I said, I don't remember if they're just innocents walking by, but in theory, if you are a restaurant owner or a manager or one of the Twin Peaks girls, whoever you are, and and you've got a pedestrian walking out in the street, walking by your establishment, do you have a duty to protect that person? And generally the answer is no. So it's hard to establish negligence if you can't show that you have a duty or that you breach the duty, on top of which there is the idea of intentional acts not being part of somebody else's negligence. You you can't necessarily be responsible for the intentional action of somebody else, but I am sure that at some point you'll see, or at the very least, there'll be a nasty lawyer letter to Twin Peaks about this incident. So it is interesting (laughs) whether or not that pans out. I think the more interesting element here is going to be how many of these guys actually, you know, go to jail for it. But again, in, in biker culture too, you go to jail all the time. People are in sure. now and you still operate business inside the same, well, not the same way, but, but similarly to outside. And I think sure. that the same gang culture that you see outside, you also see inside, except you've got, obviously, you've got, you know, Aryans and, and white supremacists, you've got uh, African-American gangs and all these other, you know, cultures inside 
the prisons. And I don't think that most people realize how prevalent it is. I remember when I first started being a lawyer, having to go out and do some of this pro bono work for some firm and go to the local jails and deal with some local municipal things. You know, and, and at that point, you know, you see people in orange jumpsuits and you're like, oh, my gosh. But then a couple of times I had to go to a federal penitentiary and that's like just another world. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, whoa, that's actually really scary. And so, yeah. Well, and the nice thing is normally cops have to uh, sting a group to get 170 arrests. They came to them to the cops this time. That was kind of nice of them. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how many of it sticks. But, you know, it's <laughs> this was, this is an interesting issue because of the RICO um, violation right. that they're able to bring. So that's unique and interesting. It'll be fun to watch. Speaking of smoking trains, four passengers on the train that derailed in Philadelphia filing a lawsuit over their injuries. According to FoxNews.com, four passengers on the Amtrak train that derailed last week in Philadelphia filed a federal lawsuit Monday citing serious and disabling injuries. According to Reuters, the lawsuit against the U.S. Rail Service filed in Philadelphia appeared to be the first by a non-employee since the May 12 crash that killed eight and injured more than 200. On Friday, an Amtrak employee filed the first lawsuit asking for more than $150,000 in damages. Almost 20 people injured in the train crash still remain in the hospital. Five are in critical condition and all are expected to survive. Now, Senator Bill Nelson, Democrat of Florida, introduced legislation Monday that would increase the cap on damages Amtrak could be forced to pay from lawsuits, raising the limit to $500 million from $200 million. That was nice of him. Amtrak has said it does not comment on lawsuits. Uh, looking for a comment from them. Investigators with the NTSB have focused on the acceleration of the train as it approached the curve, finally reaching 106 miles per hour as it entered the 50-mile stretch, 50-mile-per-hour stretch north of central Philadelphia and only managing to slow down slightly before the crash. The Amtrak engineer who was among those injured in the crash has told authorities he doesn't recall anything in the few minutes before it happened, characterizing engineer Brandon Bastian as extremely safety conscious. A close friend said he believed reports of something striking the windshield were proof that the crash was not his fault. Investigators also have been looking into reports that the windshield of the train may have been struck by some sort of object. But NTSB member Robert Sumwalt has said on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday of last week, said that he wanted to downplay that idea and that the damage to the windshield might have come from something, or excuse me, that someone fired a shot at the train. He says he's seen the fracture pattern. It looks like something about the size of a grapefruit, if you will, and it did not penetrate the entire windshield, Sumwalt said. Officials said an assistant conductor on the derailed train reported hearing the Amtrak engineer talking with a regional train engineer, and both said their trains had been hit by objects. But Sumwalt said the regional train engineer recalls no such conversation, and investigators have listened to the dispatch tape and heard no communications from the Amtrak engineer to the dispatch center to say that something had struck the train. Um, this is going to get—I wouldn't say it's going to get uglier before it gets better, but um, this is this, there's probably some different facets people can uh, look at on this as far as responsibility. Yes. Yeah, you know what. I think the one key factor that has lawyers, plaintiffs, lawyers, you know, jumping out of their skin if they're in the Philly area is that there's typically a presumption of negligence when a train derails. And what that means is that instead of, you know, everything being completely objective and you have to completely prove your case from start to finish, courts have generally ruled that there's presumed negligence. 
simply because mm-hmm. the train derailed. So you have somewhat of a reduced burden to try to prove that there's negligence there. And already, I mean, it's I'm not going to mention the name of the firm, but already this <laughs> firm, among others, has a page. I'm looking at it right now. Has a page <laughs> up, <laughs> and it's titled... <laughs> I, it's not funny, but I mean it is Amtrak derailment lawyer. So first of all, they've got you know their SEO working overtime because they've hit yeah. all the terms that they're going to attract people with, and then you know all of a sudden it becomes attorneys serving victims in Philadelphia train crash. Now, obviously for those people who were injured, they need a lawyer. Then obviously you want to go to somebody who has an interest in getting you the most amount of money that you possibly can get. Um, But other people might look at this and say, wow, this is like modern day train chasing. (laughs) What's going on here? But um, look, lawsuits are a necessary evil. And there is this presumption that I mentioned. And Amtrak does owe, remember we just talked a few minutes ago about that duty of care that Twin Peaks might not have. Amtrak definitely owes a duty of care to passengers and employees because uh, of the nature of what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's, they're obligated to operate the vehicle safely, to maintain it safely, to maintain the tracks and that sort of thing. So I think that um, the lawsuits, well, I know that the lawsuits that are out there right now, the individual ones, they all sound in the same causes of action. Uh, failure to train the engineers. They've got general neglect of the operation of the rail system, negligent maintenance, and then negligence based on the speed of the train. And so they're going right. to go with the Federal Railroad Safety Act, which sets forth the maximum allowable speeds. And because this train was traveling in excess of those recommended speeds, now you've got you know this this negligence claim, so you know with the increase in the amount of damages that Amtrak could be liable for. I mean, what did you say, five hundred million? That's what uh, Senator Bill Nelson is uh, hoping to achieve. Yes, he is no friend of Amtrak's, that's for sure. No, but, no, no, he's never taken the train. <laughs> but obviously, he is trying to. For whatever reason, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, political, he's trying to make sure that victims of this accident. And, you know, while we make light of some of the issues arising out of the lawyers chasing these people, the fact is this is a serious accident. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, We don't know why it happened yet, and that's why it's, to me, slightly humorous that people are jumping the gun and filing lawsuits. Oh, sure. But, I mean, now's the time to hit them because... Two, two, you know, three months from now, it's not going to be so uh, attention grabbing. And so these lawsuits that are being filed, I mean, you know, you've got media hound lawyers, and it's bringing a lot of attention. And there is some strategic benefit to it, but for those people out there who just look at lawyers as ambulance chasers, I mean, this is prime example. But <laughs> stereotypes exist for a purpose. Yeah, there's some truth behind them generally. Um, the um, I mean, do you think that is this Amtrak engineer at risk of of some form of civil liability? Oh, definitely. And I I think that you know if you remember, 
a couple of years ago, the Staten Island ferry guy who mm-hmm. ended up crashing the ferry, I, I'm pretty certain that he had criminal charges filed against him. So to the extent that, that this guy was not impaired or operating under any sort of, of medication or, or narcotic, um, you know, he would definitely have civil liability. Some of that is going to be uh, covered by the, by the employer, Amtrak, because they're vicariously liable. Now, if they were to find that his actions exceeded the scope of his employment and he was you know, doing things that were improper or violated their policies, they might say, oh, it's not us, it was him, and then point and shift all the blame to him. Uh, they would still, obviously, to an extent, have to cover some of the damages. But thus far, we've not seen that. Amtrak's not saying, it's not us, it's all this guy, because I think that would be a PR nightmare for Amtrak to say, it's not us. Um, you know, interesting theories about, I ha- I've heard terrorism, which has been somewhat ruled out. I've heard a bullet to the uh, the window, and when you look at the actual window of the train, it does look like something might have hit it, but you can't tell if that happened before or after, and does that explain away the excess speed? And I don't think it does. And yeah, that's the biggest question, Mark. It says, why was this guy going that fast? And then, of course, the old, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That tells me you were literally, quite possibly, asleep at the wheel. Allegedly, uh, it, it's definitely interested in his story when it comes out. And he, I'm sure, lawyered up real quick, or at least the uh, union took care of that for him. Because I know I, I used to run traffic systems. I used to do a lot of things. I used to run traffic systems for Ford Motor <laughs> Company. And um, we had we, we, we shipped transmissions. And, and um, we had three rail cars in the, in the, in the rail dock one afternoon with 120,000 pounds of transmissions on each of them. And the engineer came in so hot that he jumped those cars onto the dock wow. when he hit it. And so, I mean, you're talking about a five-foot loading dock. And um, <laughs> I called the NTSB because we wanted to look for reasons to, hey, you know, maybe this guy probably shouldn't be driving the train. Their response to us was, if there's no fatality, we will not come out and see you. Wow. And that is first-person witness. I talked to him. <laughs> I was surprised by that. And there we go. There's our answer, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> so Somebody has uh, they're, they're a well-protected bunch. <laughs> that was At that time in the 1990s, that was the stance. Um, wow. And unfortunately, I get to take the train this uh, November. <laughs> oh. I think that they'll my, be... My, <laughs> they'll be on their best behavior. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, there'll be uh, people will be watching. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling that felons can sell a gun collection with restrictions. Now, of course, felons uh, believe it's illegal for them to own firearms. Is that correct, Peter? Yeah, that's right. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of a former U.S. Border Patrol agent. Tony Henderson, he was convicted of a felony in 2006 and sought to sell his gun collection that included a personal firearm and some antique weapons. Now, a unanimous court ruled Monday, which is pretty rare in our current Supreme Court, (laughs) that once a gun owner is convicted of a felony, his or her lawfully owned firearms can be transferred from government custody to a third party if a court is satisfied that the recipient would not give the felon control over the firearms. 
The case pitted property rights advocates against those seeking tougher gun regulations. After Henderson was convicted of distributing marijuana as a condition of his release on bail, he turned over all of his firearms. Once he pleaded guilty to the drug charge, he was subject to a federal law that prevented him from repossessing his firearms. Can't get them back from the government, folks. Henderson sought to sell his guns to a friend or transfer ownership to his wife, but the government denied the request. Now, a lower court ruled in favor of the government, reasoning that granting Henderson's motion would amount to giving him constructive possession of the firearms. A lawyer for Henderson said the lower court got the case wrong. It allows the government to use a statute that bars possession of firearms to dispense with formal forfeiture procedures and effectively strips citizens of their entire ownership interest in what are often significant household assets, even when their convictions have nothing to do with those assets, wrote lawyer John P. Elwood. Now, the, C- the Supreme Court vacated that decision and remanded the case back for further consideration. In Monday's opinion, the court said that the law prevents a felon not only from holding his firearms himself, but also from maintaining control over those guns in the hands of others. But Elaine Kagan, writing for the 9-0 majority, said the government had gone too far, noting that the circumstances uh, a felon would not be able to transfer his firearms to another person, no matter how independent of the felon's influence. What matters here is not whether a felon plays a role in deciding where his firearms should go next, Kagan wrote. What matters instead is whether the felon will have the ability to use or direct the use of his firearms after the transfer. Kagan said the guns could be turned over to a firearms dealer or to a person who expects to maintain custody of them so long as the recipient will not allow the felon to exert any influence over their use. She said the court could seek proper assurances from the third party to promise to keep the guns away from the felon in order to avoid violating the law. Wow, everything makes sense there, you would think. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> for, for, for a change. What, where are, the, are, there, are there some holes in this outside of me possibly writing the dissenting opinion? You know, <laughs> I, I, you know I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, I, know, I don't think that there are holes yet. I think that it's going to happen when um, somebody falls asleep at the wheel and a felon transfers or sells his or her gun collection to somebody who is holding them for them, they weren't properly in, investigated, and then at some point a, a crime is committed with one of those weapons by the original owner. I think that that's what they're trying to prevent, and that's what the majority here is saying, that, you know, look, as long as we can track where the firearms went, who's holding them, what the purpose is, I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. I, I feel as though... This wasn't a felony conviction because of anything to do with his guns. This is a drug conviction. And so now you've got the government coming in and saying, all right, you've committed a felony, and therefore you're not permitted to have firearms. Okay, I understand that. I think that's probably an okay law. Um, But then they're going to say, but you now have no property rights. You have no interest, no ownership interest. What about all the money that you put into the guns. And, and some people are going to argue and say, yeah, but you've committed a felony, and so you should have no rights. And other people, like the advocates who were on uh, the side of the, the felon, are saying, well, yeah, but wait a minute. It's his right to dispose of the property. So, I don't know. I, I think that if you're not convicted of a gun-related felony um, and you've got to turn over or get rid of your, your firearms, I think maybe you should have the ability to sell them. And maybe to make it easier to track, 
maybe you have to sell them to a dealer. I, I think that that might be um, a caveat that I'd like to see where it's not going to a third-party individual because now the onus is on who? The government, the local government, who? To check what's the intention of this purchaser and, and, and why, as opposed to a gun dealer who, you know, I think you've got a, a better chance of saying that the gun dealer is not going to hold them for them and give them back. But, you know, what do you think about this? Well, and you said something interesting that, that I wanted to bring up. The You said, you know, if, they're not, if, they're, if they were convicted of a weapons-related felony, then something changes for you. It, it, from what I took from what you said. And yeah. I don't know that I agree with you because although I understand why you would think that, why should that person surrender his property rights? Even if it doesn't, it may not even relate to those particular firearms. Now, obviously using a firearm in the commission of a felony, different situation, you're going to lose that particular firearm. But if I use that nine millimeter, why should I be giving up my 1905 musket or whatever right. <laughs> antique that my family owns. Right. I get that. I think for me, it hinges upon, you know, when you go, especially in states like New Jersey, because it's different here than it is in states like Texas. Oh, yeah. When you, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you go to apply for a firearm, it's even different in Pennsylvania. When you go to apply for a firearm, they want to know why. And there's you know, these hurdles that you have to, to jump through. And there's this explanation about your rights as a gun owner and how a felony conviction can strip you of your, your rights to a gun. And not just, let's, you know, go aside from, from this the, the crime element of it. If you are taken into a mental hospital, you have some sort of mental breakdown. You know, the first thing the police do is they come in and they take your guns. And... I think that that can be a little disturbing to somebody, um, especially if it's a temporary issue. You know, you're having a really, really bad time with something and you have a breakdown and you end up needing to go into the hospital for some treatment and, and you come out and you're okay. You've got to surrender your guns and then good luck getting them back without a lawyer and without a lawsuit because you know how local government works. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> I think my my issue with it is that if you used a gun to commit a crime, then I think that you you lose your right to to have that possession. You you know that's just how I look at it. Yes, you've got a Second Amendment right to have firearms, and I I have no problem with people owning them when they're responsible. But if you're going to use the firearm in con- connection with a crime or a felony then why should you be conveyed that right? Why should you be given that right to maintain other firearms simply because they're collectible? I understand where well, you're yeah. coming from, but you know, I, that's how I would approach it. That's my thought process on it. Sure, and I think they'd, they'd still have to, to surrender, I don't say surrender them, still have to put them in a third-party hand, similar to this case. But, yeah, obviously, I agree with you. They shouldn't be able to keep them, but they should go to a disinterested third party and be liquidated. Um, yeah. some, some way, shape, or form. You know, and, and that money could be used maybe to, oh, I don't know, pay off of debt from the crime you committed. <laughs> yeah, right. a little restitution. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but there's Sounds that, like there's, a plan. Yeah, there's that fine line between having the government come in and start seizing your property, and then right. you know they cross that that line, 
and now they're in your your face taking your property and what about your property rights that's i i that's a struggle for me because i don't like the idea of government in my face telling me what i can do what i can have what i can't have and to have that that seizure and say all right well now we've taken all your stuff and you can't even sell it in this case i think it's completely the right decision to let this guy sell his guns and keep the money. I think absolutely. Um, I don't know that I feel the same way if it was the con- connection with a, a gun-related crime, but I think you'd have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, really. Sure, absolutely. Well, at least, like I, say, at least I, I, I was more amazed at the fact that it was a 9-0 decision from the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I didn't think they were going to agree on anything. <laughs> Uh, speaking of agreeing on something, or at least you may want to pay attention to this, and you may want to read this before you take pictures on a plane. HuffingtonPost.com telling us the next time you're tempted to take a little snapshot of an interesting cloud formation or your seatmate sprawled out in your personal space on a plane, remember Arash Sirazi and Stephen Leslie. Both of them are law-abiding citizens and air travelers, and both recently ran afoul of the airline industry's confusing photography rules. Shirazi, a music agent, was recently waiting in the Reagan National Terminal for a flight from Washington to L.A. when he decided to take a picture of an American Airlines aircraft with his smartphone. Wanted to share it with his friends on social media. Seems innocent enough. Well, a gate agent saw him snapping photos and stopped Shirazi and demanded to know why he was taking a picture of airport equipment, he remembers. He said he showed her a picture and offered to delete it, but she became even more combative, accusing him of being a security threat. She made a point to tell him that it was she was going to document this security breach and put it in his travel record. This will go on your permanent record. Shirazi said he apologized, adding that even as a frequent flyer, he was unaware of any prohibitions against taking photos of planes. But she was curt and told him to either get on the plane or take the next one, he recalls. Well, he's right. American Airlines doesn't publish any prohibitions against taking photos of its aircraft. But late last year, it updated its internal policies to allow, empo- to allow employees at the airport including ticket counters, gates, cargo, baggage, and on board, to stop passengers from taking pictures. Now, the policy is in place to protect employees and customers, according to Andrea Hughley, an American Airlines spokesman. Stephen Leslie faced a similar reaction from an airline employee when he started filming a passenger boarding a JetBlue flight. Leslie, a soft-spoken pharmacist flying from Albuquerque to New Mexico, noticed a family with a sick child. The crew looked worried about the boy's health. The family said he had cancer and had he, he had been medically cleared to fly. The incident occurred only a few days after another cancer patient was expelled from an Alaska Airlines flight under similar circumstances, and Leslie decided to tape the conversation on his phone. Well, apparently after the family was removed from the aircraft, an airline employee ordered that Leslie delete the video. He politely refused, and he too was escorted summarily from the aircraft. The reason? A crew member told him he didn't feel safe being recorded. JetBlue rebooked Leslie on the next flight, which departed nine hours later, and he uh, recovered after the uh, incident was uh, basically reported to a consumer advocacy blog and a New Mexico TV station. A report about Leslie's expulsion, the airline reviewed the incident and admitted to Leslie that the crew member's request to delete the recording fell into a gray area. It apologized, offered him a flight credit, and covered some of his expenses associated with spending an extra night in Albuquerque. It turns out JetBlue doesn't have a published photography policy. So their crew members use their professional judgment in evaluating the appropriate use of photography or videography on board, especially when it involves the privacy of the other customers 
and the safe and secure operations of the airline, according to Morgan Johnston, an airline spokesman. These incidents prove anything is that airlines can be a little camera shy. That's not new. But when pressed, most airlines say that their policies allow cameras to be used on board to record a personal event, but that snapshots of the crew, other passengers, or any security procedure are off limits. Can airlines stop you from taking photos? That's the question. Yes, if you're on the plane, says Daniel Greenberg, an attorney who specializes in photography rights issues. Says you can't prohibit photography in public. However, the, but the prohibition of photography on private property is legitimate. That decision is up to the property owner. If you don't want to follow the carrier's rules, don't get on the carrier's plane. What's the, this is interesting. Is that uh, can they do that? I mean, seems like a reasonable thought. But can you do that? Can that apply to a Starbucks? Can it apply to a Hooters or Twin Peaks for that matter? Yeah, you know, I think the interesting line. In that guy's quote is, if you don't want to follow the carrier's rules, don't get on the carrier's plane. If you have rules, then how can you follow them? And I think that that's what, uh, you know, in the JetBlue situation, there are no written, you know, rules concerning taking photographs. Um, obviously, this is a 9-11 world, and so anytime you get somebody taking a plane, I don't know what Strazi looks like. But just being, um, you know, ignorant and going off the sound of his last name, it sounds like, you know, maybe somebody even looked at him and and profiled him. I have no idea. Sure. I think that um, in this post-9-11 world, I think you have to be very, very careful because your rights with respect to things like taking a photograph on a plane, you know, do you have them? Maybe. Depends on the airline. Do you want to run the risk of having somebody be, you know, pissed off that day and see you taking a picture of a kid and saying, you know, that guy was rude to me when he got on the plane. Now I'm going to kick them off the flight. You know, I, I think that with airline security, as much as I hate to say it, you have to sort of play nice to avoid having a problem. You know, obviously, when when you've got um, the, the baggage screeners and the people doing all sorts of inappropriate things, that's where I think you, know, you get a lawyer and you, you move forward with some sort of lawsuit to prevent that because that's just um, an overuse of power. But, you know, I don't it, – it's so hard because I don't have a problem with somebody taking a picture on a plane. I mean, I'm thinking of a family sitting across the aisle from their other family members taking a picture. Sure. I'm thinking of somebody saying, all right, where is the, you know, keypad to the uh, the cockpit and can I – you know, record somebody pushing the magic buttons. I mean, I'm not talking about that. But I think that for me, if, if I were going to be flying with my family, I would say to them, all right, I don't, I don't think we should take any pictures on the plane. Just because, A, I don't know what the rules are, and I'm sure that none of the people on board that airplane, including the captain, have an idea what the airline's policy towards photograph uh, photography is. So it's just better to be safe than sorry because I'd rather get to my destination than end up in a holding cell somewhere while they question me about my cloud picture. So, but the idea and your question is interesting because the idea here is that it's public property and or private property, I say, and that's why they can enforce these rules. This is our airline. This is our property, and you can't take a picture. Um, but 
does that mean you can't take a picture in the airport? And I say, no, that doesn't mean that at all, because in my opinion, that's sure. public. I mean, you're in right, public. Right, yeah, you're <laughs> or at yeah. worst, on the airport's property, so the airport yeah. would hold jurisdiction, per se, over that. Um, but then you expand that, expand that to your comment, your question about, well, what about at a restaurant or at a Starbucks? Can they prohibit you from taking pictures? You know, I guess a company could say we have a no photograph policy, the same way that if you go to Disney World, uh, certain rides, they'll say to you, there's no photography of any type on this ride. Sure. And you're in public, but that's the rule. And if you don't abide by that rule, they can kick you out. But imagine a Starbucks saying you can't take pictures in the Starbucks. I think that they lose so much business. Uh, <laughs> and they have that safety concern. So I think that this is really a limited issue. Um, but I think that if you are an airline, you want to look at your policies and procedures. And if you don't want people taking pictures, then you need to have some rule that people can actually find. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's in their uh, terms of service, their uh, 75-page rider you ignore when you check when you uh, <laughs> purchase the ticket online. Uh, and I'm sure there are certain businesses that gentlemen frequent that photos could be discouraged. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, cigar bars, yes, definitely. Yeah, cigar bars. That's what, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I thought, well, Walmart, what's that? I thought so. <laughs> Walmart has settled a sex discrimination suit. And a Walmart and Quirkle will figure. Walmart settled a gender discrimination lawsuit from a former named plaintiff in Betty Duke's class action that sought to certify 1.5 million female employees. Stephanie Odell of Lubbock, Texas, was an original plaintiff in Dukes versus Walmart. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to certify a class of current employees in June 2011 due to insufficient commonality between the plaintiffs. However, in March of uh, 2010, the Ninth court, Circuit Court tossed Former employees like Odell, because they lacked standing and per- pursue injunctive. Excuse me, they lacked standing to pursue injunctive relief. Now Odell filed a separate class action months, uh, four months after the Supreme Court decision, claiming female workers faced gender discrimination as a result of specific policies and practices in Walmart's regions located in whole or in part in Texas, just in Texas. Odell filed a uh, <laughs> claim that uh, Walmart fired her from her assistant manager position soon after she was transferred to a Texas store and asked to be considered for future management positions. She accused Walmart of denying women equal opportunities for promotion to management track positions, as well as equal pay for hourly retail positions and salaried management positions. Odo agreed to voluntarily dismiss her claims on Friday, according to a stipulation of dismissal with prejudice. Plaintiffs Stephanie Odo and Walmart have entered into a settlement agreement to resolve Ms. Odo's claims. The filing states, in terms of the settlement, our confidential Walmart spokesman Randy Hargrove said. In April 2014, the Fifth Circuit reinstated Odell's individual claims against Walmart. Now, she was dropped from the original, if you remember. The Fifth Circuit reversed U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor's dismissal of claims with prejudice, disagreeing with his finding that rejection of class certification in Dukes removed standing for a plaintiff like Odell to pursue injunctive or declaratory relief. Ruling Odell's claim untimely would require the former class member to file duplicative, needless individual lawsuits before the court could resolve the class certification issue uh, definitively, Judge Jacques Weiner Jr. wrote. Now, O'Connor had tossed Odell's 
class claims as well, concluding that they were barred by statute of limitations. He cited the circuit, court circuit piggyback rule, which bans former class members from filing a subsequent class action if a court has found the suit inappropriate for class action. You just can't keep stacking them on, assuming the statute of limitations has run for the class action claims. Um, this gal, part of a lawsuit, dumped from the lawsuit, back into her lawsuit. Um, is this, I don't say, I don't think this is normal, but what's the ins and outs on this? I mean, it, it, what do you got? If you're part of something like this, what are you going to look for to find out if you still have a claim? You know, there's so many components to purported class action lawsuits and everyone thinks, oh, class action, class action. That's where, you know, that's where the money is. The money's there for the attorneys. It's not there for the, the members of the class. And I'll give you the two-second primer on how a class action <laughs> complaint is filed. So the lawyer finds one or two people, and they do some investigation to determine that there's enough people to be in a class. You don't need their names or numbers. All you need to know is that uh, it, it involves all female employees at Walmart. That's good enough for a lawyer to say, all right, we're going to file a class action. They file a lawsuit. The same way that you and I would file a normal complaint, they're going to allege special class action rules, commonality, numerosity, all these sorts of, of uh, criteria that's going to be in the complaint. And then you always get a motion to dismiss by the defendant. And at that point, you either start looking at settlement or the case moves forward. But it doesn't get certified for months, sometimes a year after the case is filed and if it's not certified, meaning the judge says this can be a class action, all it is is a lawsuit involving individual people. So when you get to the point where your case is certified, now if you are not part of that lawsuit, you know, you could, if you're not a named plaintiff, you could still be a member of the class, but you don't necessarily have to go under that class action to seek relief. You could sue them separately so long as you're not part of that class action, um, which is a little tricky, and there's a lot of detail that goes into it. But the yeah. I think the, the more interesting aspect of this is that Walmart, who does not shy away, as you mentioned, from being in court, they settled this because they did not want to deal with the possibility of having a class action or other people coming in. Because if you're defending a class action, you know, the lawyer is just racking up time and money. So <laughs> for them, it was a, a smart decision. But, you know, interestingly, with, with a class action, let's assume that you file, you're the plaintiff, you're the lead plaintiff, and you're alleging something about uh, a company. You allege that company A... Uh, mistreats male employees, uh, and it's an across-the-board policy, and you know that their handbook says things in there that make it questionable, at the very least, um, that they discriminate against men. And you go and you file a class action. And the lawyer from the other side calls you up and says, listen, we don't want to deal with this case. We want to make this go away. What will it take to settle it? You, and this is interesting, you're filing a class action, meaning that you are the representative of the entire class of like-minded, similar-situated people. 
But if that lawyer comes to you and says, we don't want to deal with this, so will you settle right now before the certification process? And that plaintiff says, sure. He can settle out without affecting the rights of the other potential class members. And that was my biggest question is what happens later, yeah. Yeah, and so now he's out, he's settled, and the way that some of these defense firms look at it is, look, we don't believe that this is a a really viable class action, but before this gets super-duper media publicity, before we get into discovery and have to start disclosing information, we'll make a settlement offer to this person, this person will go away, and we'll hope that it doesn't happen again. And that's the gamble that they, they take. But oftentimes that gamble works, works out for them because they get rid of the one lawyer and plaintiff who think it's a good idea to sue them over something, and then it never comes back to haunt them. That's not something <laughs> like you know, a major class action, like a defective medical device or a hip implant or something like that. I mean, we're talking about this is a discrimination case and discrimination cases by nature are you know very very subjective he said she said unless there's something in the policy that says you know all women should be mistreated you've got one person's word against another and so there's a lot that goes into play so this isn't like that medical device case where the medical device failed this is simply all right let's make this go away and guarantee you that it will be cheaper, and then we keep our fingers crossed that nobody else comes back and files. Yeah, no kidding, and, and that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. And like I said, I wasn't sure what would if other people could could I don't want to say piggyback, but their their rights aren't superseded by the fact the class was dismissed. It's just you're not all in the same group. So, right, good yep. to go. There we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, we're back at it with uh, possibly problems with cops again. Rappers say the San Francisco Police Department had no cause for arrest. San Francisco Police alleged, excuse me, illegally arrested, I should say allegedly illegally, arrested four black men who were filming a rap video, the men claim, in federal court. Ryan MacArthur, Dante Andre, Joseph McGowan, and Arthur Stern Jr. claim police racially targeted their group of nearly 20 black men working on the video in the Bayview neighborhood. Seven individual officers are named as defendants, along with the city and county and the police department. MacArthur was filming a video for Stern, a rap artist known as Young Lot, during the May 16, 2003, or excuse me, 2013 fracas. Without probable cause or a search warrant, SFPD officers subjected each and every member of the group to an unreasonable search, seizure, arrest, conspiracy to arrest, and humiliation at gunpoint, the plaintiffs claim. Police said the the incident was prompted by an armed man walking into the crowd where the video was being made. Police ordered the man, the man out of the crowd and arrested him for carrying a concealed and loaded firearm. Police said in a statement after the incident. Now, as officers responded to the scene, the group of men were all detained for officer safety reasons, police said in the statement. But plaintiffs claim the officers could have kept the man from entering the group, but let him do so just to justify a search. They, came, they claim police confiscated the possessions of all of the men at the video shoot. The officers did not identify them as police, but simply pointed guns and yelled commands to the African-American males, as is the custom and policy within the FPD, quote-unquote, the complaint states. Now, that created a scenario where if these young African-American men had moved out of innocent fear, the SFPD officers would have gunned down the entire group again, quote-unquote, according to the complaint. 
The plaintiffs say they were detained for about two hours, though an SFPD certificate of release form says that they were released after a one-minute detention, which seems unlikely. One minute. The other men were. <laughs> the other man was arrested for drug possession. For sale, police said the plaintiffs seek punitive damages for civil rights violations, conspiracy, negligence, assault, and malicious prosecution. They are represented by Joe Siegel, who could not be reached after business hours Friday. The SFPD declined to comment on pending litigation. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that really stuck out on this that stunk was the fact that they said, yeah, we, we, we detained him for one minute. Yeah. Well, they all had their 60-second <laughs> stopwatches on. Yes, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe the entire and police go. department, they were given the Apple Watch, and, you know, they just tapped the 60-second 60 60 timer. All right, detention over. You're free to go. Three, two, one, go. Yes. And uh, there's a lot that, uh, on the surface, surface, doesn't seem like a good idea for the SFPD. Yeah. You know, I have to think, and I have no more information than what we just said but I have this gut feeling that it's not completely out of the question for the police to allow somebody to walk in so that they can then justify, <laughs> you know, a detention or an arrest. So you can see, you can see the rookie now. Hey, we should stop the guy. Whoa, 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 son. Stand yeah. back. Wait. <laughs> That's the old story about the bulls on the hill, and we should run down and, and to have one of those bulls, one of those cows. And bull says, "No, no, son. Let's walk down, and we'll get them all." <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's, that, 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 that was the rule applied here. I, I think it. I think it might be. I mean, I mean, can I can imagine the police looking at, you know, a, a rap video and saying to themselves, you know, unless it's somebody that they really have a lot of respect for, I think they can say to themselves, you know, look yeah, that's at this. That's funny too. <laughs> yeah, you know, look at this guy and he's got all this money and and, you know, let's let's mess him up. I, I could picture that. Sure. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. And again, it's, you know, why should San Francisco be any different than what's being divulged from other large metropolitan police departments? There seems to be, you know, I, I, I hate to say there's not the appearance of a widespread problem. And, and, I, and it's ignorant to think that it's not, but right. it certainly seems that if I were the, um, the mayor or police chief of say, I don't know, Detroit, I would already be in contact with the Department of Justice saying, you know, maybe we should probably take a look at our own processes before we end up with a real problem and or lawsuits pending. Yep. Well, I think so, if, you, if you've if you got lemonade or you got lemons and you want to make lemonade, I think the, the, the silver lining here is just think about how many rap songs this guy is going to be able to create. How many lyrics he's going to be able to write. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Yeah. For the next album. Man's keeping him down. That's right. <laughs> uh, Bakersfield, California, courthousenews.com. Wells Fargo harassed and abused a woman about her student loans while she was hospitalized with a brain trauma and paralysis. A woman is claiming in court as she's calling Wells Fargo an abuser. Teal Langworthy and her father sued Wells Fargo in Kern County Court on May 14th, alleging unfair debt collection practices. Mm, excuse me. They do not dispute the student loan, but say that the bank harassed both of them, though the bank knew that Teal was gravely ill in the hospital. Wells Fargo debt collectors allegedly called her cell phone several times a day, demanding payment, though she told them she was paralyzed on her left side, Teal says. During these calls from Wells Fargo Bank, Teal was often in tears from the stress and anxiety caused by Wells Fargo Bank's 
employees as these employees verbally abused her for allegedly not paying the alleged debt the complaint states. Often in these calls by Wells Fargo Bank, Wells Fargo Bank employees told Teal that they did not care if Teal was hospitalized because Teal owed Wells Fargo Bank money and she had to pay. Then the bank began bombarding her father's with calls several times a day demanding money from him, allegedly. The Langworthies say the only reason Wells Fargo could have done this was, well, it knew Teal could not earn money while she was paralyzed, so they decided to call her dad. So they harassed Chad and Teal and caused Chad and Teal great stress and anxiety at a time when Teal was physically and psychologically frail from her illness and at a time when Chad suffered from the stress and anxiety of knowing that his daughter was suffering from this serious medical condition. Wells Fargo spokesman said the bank does not comment on petting litigation surprise. The Langworthies seek at least $25,000 in actual damages, $1,000 in statutory damages, plus costs of litigation and attorney's fees. Pay the bills. Um, probably not that um, strange of a story. No. But what are your – what? When, I mean, and I know there's all sorts of speculation about when people call and you see the commercials. Are you having debt problems? The people won't leave you alone, yada, yada, yada. What really are your rights and what, what – uh, what can and can't debt collectors do to you via the phone or mail? You know, the Fair Debt Collection Act prohibits debt collectors from calling you after a certain time, typically 9 p.m. at night. It prohibits them from calling you if they know that you're celebrating a particular holiday. That's why there's no debt collection calls on Christmas. Um, you know, they are not allowed to threaten you with litigation. They're not allowed to harass you. They're not allowed to insult you. They're not allowed to tell you that you're going to go to jail. And as easy as that is to understand, what I cannot fathom and understand is why so many of these people who are debt collectors completely ignore these, these rules. I have a theory as to why it happens. I'll get to that in a second, but they this is this is commonplace, you know. And yeah, people owe money. Look, everybody who provides a service or a product wants to get paid. I understand that it's capitalism; it makes sense. There are times when people are scammers. They deliberately do things and they don't pay, and those people that's unfair, and they should be made to pay. There are other people who just get into trouble. And in today's world, our economy, the way that the, the country is being run, it happens more frequently. And it's oh, sure. really a shame to see somebody who has the ability to just auto-dial you all day long, get you to the point where you want to throw yourself out a window because you can't take it anymore. So here's my theory. These debt collection places generally staff people that are young or people that are jerks. Because would you want to spend your day calling people, trying to get money from them? Oh, gosh, I, no. Right? I mean, that's got to suck. I don't like calling, <laughs> you know, unless I have to to begin with. And now I'm going to call you up. I know you're going to be angry with me. And I'm going to have to demand money from you. And I know that, that you know, you're going to hang up on me or yell at me. So how am I going to behave on the call? I'm going to be a jerk. And I think that you've got to be a certain type of person to, to take that job. And I think that if you get angry enough at somebody who's, who's upsetting you, you're going to say something stupid like, yeah, well, you're going to go to jail. 
and that violates the law. In ah. this case, right, I don't think that Wells Fargo knew that this girl was paralyzed and they were deliberately doing it. I think they violated the Fair Debt Collection Act, but I don't think that they did it because she was paralyzed. I think that they I mean, just, yeah, they just did it. <laughs> yeah, that this is what they do. It doesn't matter who you are. And I guarantee you that these debt collectors in general hear all the time, well, I'm going to file bankruptcy. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. And they, they are all trained to say, all right, we'll go ahead. And until you do, here's what we are going to do. One point sure. I want to make, though, Bob, if you find yourself in this situation where you owe a significant amount of money and you can't repay it, don't let this get to the point where you are called every day, night and day, your life is miserable. There are options. You know, you can go to a credit counseling center. There are so many nonprofit organizations out there that can help you establish a payment plan. You can talk to a lawyer and find out if you qualify for a bankruptcy. You know, maybe a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and see if you can get yourself a fresh start because, you know, I know everybody from the 70s has this stigma about bankruptcy and how it's like the worst thing ever. It's like the scarlet letter, but it's a right that you're afforded under our federal laws. And if you are honestly unable to pay your bills, then avail yourself of that right and go see a lawyer and you know, think about filing bankruptcy because you're going to have better credit faster if you go through a bankruptcy and you come out on the positive end than if you continue to let these people oh, yeah. harass so. or, or Or try to pay this or try to pay that or try to pay this. And, and that's, that's where you get that much money coming at you. You know, it's, it, it can get ugly quick. Especially yeah. well, what we have here, the, 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 the mid-2000s when – uh, the housing market. I had three houses in 2007, trying to sell them, and they right. didn't move. Oh, oh man, talk about painful haircuts. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, been there, done that one. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there are definitely protections. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yep. You, there's nothing you can do to sometimes prevent that. You can't foresee the future. So, but like I, the best, best. Um, Decision you can do is, is go get help. Absolutely. Um, Dove Charney. We talked about uh, this individual a week or two ago. Suing American Apparel for $20 million. Busy and court he is. Adding to last week's lawsuit against an investment firm with a $20 million defamation claim against the clothing retailer he founded, American Apparel. Charney, 26, sued investment firm Standard General for $30 million last week. Gosh, sorry, last week uh, in Superior Court claiming he was fired from American Apparel's board because of a bogus investigation and false claims. He made similar allegations in the same court Tuesday against American Apparel and its chairwoman, Colleen Brown. American Apparel spokesman Ariel Patrick said Charney's claims would fail. These meritless claims serve as public relations opportunities now, but they fail to they will each fail the test when they put they're put before a judge, Patrick wrote in an email. Charney has been the subject of highly publicized claims that he misused corporate assets, abused his executive position, who has it, come on, and sexually harassed employees. The company suspended him in June of 2014 and six months later pushed him off the board. In May 12th, lawsuit takes aim at a letter Brown wrote to American Apparel's employees in April. I told you before, don't put anything in writing. You don't want to have Peter defend in court. 
Brown wrote that the board had caused to fire him and that he had agreed to step down if an independent investigation found his conduct unacceptable, Jarney says in the complaint. He also claims that Brown wrote falsely that the company was pushed to the brink of financial ruin under his leadership. Defendants have engaged in an, un- in an ugly campaign to defame and attack Charney's personal and professional reputation and character in some of the most despicable and demeaning ways possible, the 23-page complaint states. Charney claims that Brown and the retailer obtained his email messages from the company server, including his highly personal and private photographs and videos, not on a company server, and leaked them to the press to help quash his legal claims against Standard General and American Apparel. The Canadian businessman wants a minimum of $10 million in general and compensatory damages and $10 million in punitive damages. What's going to happen here? This, I mean, that's the one thing that stuck out to me. He got his, from his company email, highly personal and private photographs and videos. Yeah, right. And like you said, nothing's personal and private on a company email. No, you, not no the last pri- time I checked. Nope. No privacy right whatsoever. So if you're stupid enough to have personal videos and stuff on your work computer, then you get what you deserve. This guy is, is he's interesting. He's made a lot of money. He's been very successful, but he's also very hated by many people. And he's, you know, had so many sexual harassment lawsuits filed against him. It's not because people are targeting him. I think it's because of his demeanor. I mean, this guy is unapologetic for anything that he's done. He is, um, you know, very unique in his approach. He's a very straightforward, direct guy. And I think that (laughs) that helps a lot of people the wrong way. So... I, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how successful he's going to be on this, but I think that he is one of those guys that will sue you for anything. You know, I just think that, uh, oh. you know, he doesn't mind being tied up in litigation. But I, I think that this highlights a point where so many people that I've spoken to have said to me, I want to sue so and so, but I don't have the money to do it. And I think that. The decision to file a lawsuit can be so so based on your finances, your ability to fund that lawsuit. But I sure. think a lot of people who have the money, they're just going to do it. What difference does it make? It's a you know a tax write off for them. It doesn't matter. But people who don't have you know an excess of money to pay a lawyer, it becomes very troubling because they can't afford it. So you know I, I think that he's just like a lot of these other high-powered executives, if they've got it, they're going to use it, and it certainly will teach people a lesson. Plus, I mean, this is the company he created. He's got a beef here, and I think that, um, you know, that's where this is coming from, a little bit out of anger. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, it's definitely getting getting uglier as the days wear on, so they will they'll eventually figure it out, and they'll both move on and both be fine. <laughs> Now this headline, I, I, this headline I thought could have been better, and I'm sure you, you could probably come up with a better one as well, Peter. AMC's Walking Dead appeal comes up short. Give me a better one. No, oh, come on, it's got to be something better. Uh, <laughs> spot here. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 I can't. I can't. I just don't have that ability. <laughs> Give me one. <laughs> AMC's Walking Dead appeal doesn't survive. There you go. There's an easy. Well, one. that's better. That's much better. <laughs> 
Uh, CourthouseNews.com telling us New York Appeals Court shot down the test by the cable network AMC to access certain records for its fight with the creator of The Walking Dead. Frank Darabont, a three-time Academy Award-nominated writer and director whose past credits include The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, something about prisons with this guy, endeared himself to a new generation of horror fans with his adaptation of Robert Kirkman's series of graphic novels about a zombie apocalypse. The show just wrapped up its fifth season, but Darabont's 2013 lawsuit claims that the network has been using Hollywood accounting to deny him licensing fees ever since giving him the axe, pardon the pun, back in season two. AMC moved to compel Darabont's talent agency, the Creative Artists Agency, to produce documents regarding contingent compensation owed to the agency or its clients on their agreements with certain cable TV studios. If it couldn't get that, AMC said it would settle for the Manhattan Supreme Court throwing out the certain terms or certain claims and allegations. Give us this or we'll okay with you throwing it out. Judge shot the maneuver down, however, and Appellate Division's first judicial department affirmed that on Tuesday. Those documents and the CAAs and its clients' dealings with non-party studios have no bearing on the issues in this action and will not sharpen those issues, as the only relevant inquiry is the monetary terms of defendants' transactions with non-party distributors of comparable programs, the unsigned order states. And finding that the documents are not necessary for AMC to defend itself against claims that it breached industry standards, the court noted the trial judge has already vowed to preclude plaintiffs from raising such concerns. You can't bring it up, fellas. Uh, Hollywood accounting, what is that term? <laughs> well, I think what is that like really, math? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. I think this amounts to a fishing expedition, and this highlights the fact that courts do not allow fishing expeditions, even if you are as powerful an entity as AMC. So when you look at whether or not certain evidence or information should be turned over, you've got to look at um, the A, admissibility of that evidence, and B, whether or not that evidence is going to be so disproportionate. You know, it doesn't prove anything. It's, it's so highly irrelevant to what you're trying to do that there's no reason for you to have it. I think a lot of times if you've got a, a bad judge in a local setting and you're dealing with an issue where there's a subpoena, the judge is going to just rule, go, just give it up. But oftentimes, especially with something like a business or AMC here talking about licensing and, and competitors, they would, would benefit from obviously seeing documents that they might not be otherwise entitled to see. And so while huh. it might not sense, it could certainly benefit them in other ways, and that's what I think the New York court is trying to prevent against. But So I think this was a good decision, but unfortunately, a lot of, of smaller courts, they don't see it that way, and they make a ruling, and they will have somebody give up information, subscriber lists and things that are not uh, okay. relevant, but they don't get into that matter. I think that, that this was a good decision. Because if the court ruled that not only are you know is it not uh, something that they're entitled to, but they're precluded from even raising those claims, I, I think it's a good decision. Sure. No, that, that's interesting. Yeah, because you talk about how you know the, the business business is ruthless and they'll take any advantage they can get. So that's uh, yeah. that's interesting that that's what it was was a fishing expedition. Uh, well, we'll go from, from fishing until dogs. Man saves a dog's life. I remember I read this story when I, when I saw it. I went, oh, you can't do that. 
but it bites him in the butt. Not yeah. literally. It doesn't bite him. Life lesson of the week, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> in Ouch. Georgia, Michael, <laughs> yes. Michael Hammonds saved a dog from a hot car and was awarded with a pair of handcuffs. Nice and shiny they were. This debacle all started when Hammonds and a group of shoppers noticed a dog left inside of a Mustang convertible on a hot day. While other shoppers called police, Hammonds, an army vet, jumped into action. He used his wife's wheelchair leg to smash the window and save the dog. When the dog's owner finally came out of the store, she was definitely not grateful for Hammonds' rescue. The owner claims that she was only in the store for five minutes and demanded that Hammonds be arrested. Chief Deputy Lee Weems told WAGATV that officers did not want to arrest him, but had to because the car owner insisted on pressing charges. Hammonds was charged with criminal trespass, and the owner was cited for leaving her dog in a hot car. Now, when most people think of trespass, they think of going on a property without property owner's permission. Obviously, I would. This is true. However, Georgia also classifies the intentional destruction of another person's property, causing up to $500 of damage without permission, as criminal trespass. In this particular situation, Hammonds did admit to police that he destroyed the Mustang's window. In Georgia, criminal trespass is a misdemeanor, and if found guilty, he could face up to one year in prison and a fine of $1,000. Now, <laughs> up to a year in jail? That doesn't quite seem fair to reward for saving, saving a life, however. Uh, according to Hammonds, the temperature outside the car was 80 degrees, and that temperature inside the car could have reached 114 degrees. The dog was panting in distress, and in distress he saw, or so he thought. But was he justified for those actions? Well, not under the law. Georgia law does allow people to break car windows to save children without punishment. However, the law does not apply to pets and animals. Animal advocates claim they are working to change that law. Regardless, Hammond doesn't seem like he'll mind the consequences, as he told WAGA-TV. He said he knew there'd be consequences, but it didn't matter. Glass they make new every day, but they could never replace that dog. Um, what would you do if you, you were really in a situation? I, <laughs> I, I, I personally probably cut the top, but <laughs> wow, that's mess. I would keep walking, and I just feel like, wow, look at that dog. It looks hot. I just keep going. He you know, looks hot as I lick my ice cream cone. Boy, must be hot having a that far. Just keep going. <laughs> Somebody ought to shave you. Um, <laughs> you know, if it were a person, I'd feel totally different. If it was a kid sure. left in the car, you know. But but this goes back to something we talked about a long, long time ago. Sometime last year, we talked about when people become too nosy and they get too involved in other people's <laughs> business and then they overstep their bounds. I mean, I don't know if the window was cracked enough and the dog was getting some air. I, I don't know. You know, I think that I, I say it facetiously, but I would walk by because I wouldn't want to get in trouble for making a mistake. And I think that busting well, out the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people will say, well, you know, a dog is just the same as a, a, a person. I don't feel the same way. So if I saw a kid in distress in the car, that would be different. But I'd need to see some distress, too. You know, like dogs pant all the time. So how do I know he was actually in distress? It's not like he was like, row, it's hot. You know, I mean, <laughs> we, know. <laughs> we now understand the no Peter's house. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would pro- I would have a harder time with it. I I would um, I don't know that I would bust the window out. Um, that seems a bit extreme. 
Um, it, it, uh, it'd be different maybe if the dog was pawing at the window, or, but then dogs do that too. I would probably go find the woman and then, of course, be rewarded with her tongue lashing for bugging her anyway and, and, and being nosy, like you said, you know. That dog, none of your concern. So, you know, the, uh, I don't think I would bust the glass out, but uh, I would probably at least try to find the person. <laughs> I guess you, you could always go back into the store and ask them to make an announcement. Hey, there's sure, a dog sure, sure. in the car, you know. Something like that, or better yet, you put out there's a there's a Mustang convertible Mustang in the parking lot being towed. <laughs> that will get their attention. That's right. <laughs> now that I have your attention, what's with the dog? <laughs> yeah, you know, look, I don't, I do not uh, advocate being cruel to animals at sure, all, and I, I don't. just don't know. <laughs> but I don't happen to be an animal. Lover, I appreciate them. They're very cute. I like looking at them when somebody else has them. But I, I, you know, like I would have a hard time. I guess it's because I have kids. I don't know. I'd have a hard time becoming so emotionally attached to an animal. I, I don't know. I just can't. Like I, I would never dress it up and stick it in my 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 bag. And <laughs> take it with me everywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mr. Lamont, please approach the bench. <laughs> Why do you have a dog with you in court today? Oh, it's just like a person, Your Honor. Hey, get the dog out of here. We'll find you in contempt. Um, <laughs> I, I see. I view dogs and cats. If they're pets, they 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 they, they have a, I think they have a different understanding of what humans are, and they look to them because as a, as a support system. I don't think of them as people per se, but I think you have a, if you own one, you have a definite responsibility to them and yeah. leaving them in the car, probably a bad call, but uh, not as bad as busting the window out apparently. Yeah. I think you, you, you hit it right on the head. If you own a pet, then you have a responsibility and you can't do something like stick a dog in a hot car. If you don't <laughs> want that responsibility and duty, then be like me and don't own a pet. But you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. If you own an animal, then you must be responsible. And that's why there's so many educational programs out there telling people, hey, before you buy this animal or adopt this pet, you know, are you sure you want it? But I don't think that there's enough out there. I think people on a whim will go into a pet store and they'll buy something. And then, they, you know, two months later, they're like, oh, my God, this animal is ruining my life. Let's let him go in the middle of the highway. Oh. Sadly, I know parents like that. <laughs> This child's ruining my life. Uh, <laughs> oh, not really. Uh, maybe some days. <laughs> but that wraps it up, man. That does it. All right, so next week, um, it's Memorial Day. Is it Memorial Day? Yeah, it's Memorial Day because Labor it's Day is Memorial Day. Day on Monday, yes. All right, so we will not be here. On Memorial Day, we'll all be at Bob's house for a big blowout barbecue. Because uh, Bob will be gone in his RV, so yeah, by all means, come on over. Trash the place. <laughs> so uh, we will be back on Tuesday with Week in Review, uh, just like today. We mixed it up a bit, but next week there will be no show on Monday. Week in Review will be on Tuesday. We're just going to adjust our schedule accordingly, so make sure you tune in. Um, you know, after a, a nice long three or four day weekend, you're going to want to hear what we have to say because I guarantee you there are going to be people that have done crazy things that you're going to want to know about. 
So <laughs> we thank goodness for Monday. We get Monday's deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, so make sure you tune in next Tuesday. Also, just a reminder. Um, when you go and view this video later on the YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe so that you get notifications of all of the pending and upcoming live events, as well as notifications when new videos are posted. Remember, I talked at the top of the show about our five-part video series this week, the top five reasons not to file a lawsuit. So check that out. We are up to number four, which was today's release. Make sure you subscribe, leave your comments, ask your questions. That's what we're here for. We will be back next Tuesday, Bob and I, with Week in Review. Um, I will be back later this week with a live business and legal Q&A. But uh, for Bob, make sure that you have a nice Memorial Day. And remember, yeah, he has everyone over to his house because he will not be That's there. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly correct. Use the grill, use the pool, whatever it takes, just to... Cut the grass when you're here because I won't be able to cut it until Monday or Tuesday. and It's going to drive me nuts. And don't leave your dog in the car. Oh, don't. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for today. Thanks, everybody, to uh, who, who subscribes and listens. And make sure you, uh, you keep giving us your feedback and comments. We absolutely appreciate it. Until next time, remember that there's power in understanding the law. <laughs>